Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or challenges to think a little differently. I may well have set up this podcast series just to get an hour with my next guest. I jest, of course, but my path has crossed with Brezzy Nal Breslin many times over the years. And in TV and radio land, you often only get eight to 12 minutes, which is an overview on a topic. And he has so much to say as a mental health advocate and has such a wealth of experience behind him since he released his book about his own struggles, My Mate Jeffrey, in 2015. Since then, he's co-founded a charity, Lust for Life, completed a master's in mindfulness, helped bring about change in mental health approaches in the school's curriculum, published several children's books based on the language important around dealing with difficult emotions. When he's a guest on my radio show, I often have to be extracted by my producer from the corner I have backed Brezzy into as I siphon as much information from him as I can about what he's up to at the minute. He is a real advocate for change. Today he talks to me about our dysfunctional health service, particularly when it comes to dealing with mental health and how we're going to need activism at community and grassroots level to push for change from the top. We talk about how real change is possible and the incredible energy of the current generation to face the big issues head on. And of course, I tap into his wealth of knowledge on how we can protect our own mental health, how we can win the war of distraction that new technology throws in our way, what mindfulness and meditation really are and how you don't need to mark out special times to chill out on a cushion to do it. And we talk about the week fairly recently when he ran an ultra marathon and performed two live Blizzards gigs over a few days, all to raise funds for his charity. This man takes action. Grezzy, you are definitely a consummate change maker. You don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk as well. But can we go back to you writing your book, Me and My Mate, Jeffrey, and you deciding you were going to put your story on paper and then put it out there? Um, yeah, it was initially, like everyone says, we're writing a book like that. It was quite cathartic to do it. But the thing about it was, I remember my publisher initially going, I'm not sure you should be that blunt. I think it's it might be a bit hard for people to read. And I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm not going to pretend it was nice. I'm not going to pretend it was, a, you know, it was some kind of, you know, you sometimes you read the books and it just feels like there's something missing. So I said, it's all going on the line if I, t- if I do this. And they were like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. And the hardest part about the book wasn't writing it, it as when I finished writing it and I got the first copy and I had to give it to my mother. She knew it all, but like sh- to read that as a mother in that kind of chronological order. And no other people are going to read it. No, no. And that's it. And I, I drove around Ireland when I gave her the book. I literally left the house, drove to Galway, down to uh, Ennis, across to Cork, 
I literally drove the whole way around. I got to Arklow or somewhere near that side, coming up to Dublin, Greystones or Bray or somewhere like that. And she texted me. I knew she'd be reading it straight away. And she goes, I've never been prouder. And I was just like, the relief. I didn't care after that because it was it was difficult. But, it, you know, it, 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 the book isn't so much just about my journey. It's about how we looked at mental health, even in the 80s and the 90s. Let's not even go back to the 60s and 70s because it was so draconian and, and terrifying. But in the 80s and 90s, this was the perception of it. And when I look back, I look at when Kurt Cobain died. That was such a seminal moment in every teenager's life in the 90s. Someone like me who was obsessed with him. And not knowing what it was. Never really even heard the word suicide. And I remember a picture in the paper had a picture of him with a gun to his head. And I thought to myself, this is all so wrong. And I'm, I'm so confused, terrified. Why did my hero die? And then I finally asked my teacher. Uh, Christian brother who punched my desk and screamed in my face and called him a coward so what I always wanted to do around mental health was is not to let any young person ever have to hide that or have to be spoken to like that or not know what the language is to describe what they're experiencing and what they're feeling because what they're feeling can be dealt with that's the reality this stuff can be dealt with we know what we know there's people who can help but if it's internalized and it's repressed and it's not communicated or it's not understood that's where the problem lies that's why I wrote the book. So at what point then, because through the PR machine, which comes with writing a book, you're giving interviews, you're you know going from radio station to TV station, you're talking all the time about it. Were you a reluctant mental health ambassador or willing? Did it carry you or did you carry it? I think at the time, I suppose now it's easy to say it because so many people are talking about it now. But really only at that stage, it was myself and Connor Cusack who, who came out that blatantly. And that, I suppose, was graphically, it was it was a warts and everything kind of conversation around mental health. It wasn't I was stressed. It wasn't I was a bit overwhelmed. It was like I was, you know, breaking my own arm in complete and utter fear and, and self-harm, not under, understanding what was going on. I was living with this kind of constant chronic panic disorder. And even the media were like, what do we do with this? This is too much. Not even too much. This is this. You could see some people in the interviews just didn't know how to handle it. And it wasn't their fault. It was just like they didn't expect it to be that blatant. And some of them wouldn't have read the books. So They're like, why are you being so honest about this? I said, because that's what the book said. It's going to come out anyway. So I might as well say it here. And then other interviews are really strong where they kind of you could see a sense of relief. They're going, oh my God, we can talk about something like this. I don't have to dance around it. And I remember doing an interview at the time. I think it was um, with Hot Press. And I just was so blatant. And it was so relieving. And I remember walking down this road, just, you know, down Dame Street. Uh, sorry, George Street. And I was doing that interview. And I said to my mother, like, I, I'm going to be fairly honest here. And I was on, on the phone to her, a bit nervous about it. And she goes, if somebody said this when you were 15, would it have helped? And I went, of course it would have. She goes, well, then do it. You know what you're doing. But then I think it came to the point where people saw you as somebody who had it all figured out. And that's the hardest part, because I don't. And just because I talked about it doesn't mean it's all hunky-dory. And that was the difference, because people would come up in the bars going, my sister, my mother, my brother, my father, I need to tell you something. I need, to, And I'd be like, guys, I can't, I can't hold this. I, 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 nobody can hold this. And, then, you know, and that, that was the most difficult part. 
Yeah, but I think that's such an interesting and important message, isn't it? That it's not this linear line where we all live happily ever after. You learn the tools, you learn to cope, you have ups, you have downs. But you did have a huge weight of responsibility on your shoulders. So at what point did Lust for Life come into your head that you were going to co-found a charity, that you were going to take this on and and do more than just help people by telling your story? Uh that was initially I did a I wrote a blog called my 1000 hours and the blog was basically a bit more detail around the book the different moments the different phases of how I approached the different things I did to start to get control and that's all the blog was and I put it up and I don't really know much about kind of digital kind of footprints and stuff but it got insane uh, numbers it just started to erupt And people then started saying, can I tell my story on your platform? I was like, well, I can't hold that. Like, I can't provide you with aftercare if this, you know, telling your story isn't the hard part. It's actually what happens after. That's the overwhelming part. When people start to come to you for help, that's when it gets overwhelming. Even when people come and say nice things to you, like you really helped me, that could overwhelm somebody. So I used to say to people, I can't be that person for you. I think this is great, but can you bear with me here and I'll figure out something. So that's when we built the website of Lust for Life. And it was just a website. And when we did that and we started that, I was self-funding, essentially. So I was with editors and people where I was paying for the editors to be able to host the content and take care of the people and the writers, which was a huge body of work. I was walking into AIB on a Friday evening looking for overdrafts and like not knowing what a business plan was. And they were like, ah, we can't just give you money. I'm like, but it's a great idea. They're like, that's not how it works. So that was the level of what it was at the start. I had no idea how to build an organization, not a clue how to start a charity. Didn't even want to do that. But then I was like, right, I cannot become a problem admiration society. I do not want to be that person. I don't want to be the person pointing the finger and throwing stones at government. I don't want to do that. There's enough of that bullshit, you know, where people are just consistently pointing out the issues. For me, I felt the best way I would have survived or got through was through education. That would always been the most supportive tool for me. If I had an education system in the 90s that was exploring this and helped me, I would have been able to deal with this stuff. But I didn't. So that's what I said. Tell us for life. And I started. This is where we go. We've got to go at education. We won't. There's no point in going at health. The health system, our health system will never fix this. Our health system is so so dysfunctional when it comes to mental health it just is and you can i interviewed the mental health minister recently in his current phase guys all it is is a is a is a point of crisis model that's what it is we wait for people to get the point of crisis then we intervene which is really expensive economically and humanly i always say that so what do we do we look at preventative models and the preventative model approaches education and that's what lust for life did and we are now in 340 primary schools with our schools program we will be in every primary school within the next two years we will be built into the curriculum it's an evidence-based program we know how to do it right we went to ucd we said right listen we need you to research this this is going to cost a lot of money we looked at the stakeholders in education from the teaching councils the unions the teachers everybody and we said to them listen the main stakeholder here isn't any of you it's the kids they're the stakeholders that's who matters here we got to work towards that and that's where the schools program came from that took years and years that took building an organization that took paula coming in who i hadn't a clue what to do you know she's talking to me with business plans like i honestly i'm a songwriter don't be giving me this shit i'll come up with big ideas but that will be it and ultimately, I became the creative director. So I came up with the ideas. And then the other thing with Lust for Life that I'm so excited about, the one thing that really excites me 
is there's something with young people now that I can't explain properly. It's an energy now. It's an energy. It's an energy that I don't have. It's a power. It is something incredibly impressive. And yes, the media will like to say it's some, some young people are being overly woke and, you know, snowflakes. That's what we tend to do when we're worried about things. We, we label them. Uh, I would rather not label our generation who are actually finally addressing the things that we ignored for, for so many years. So I saw, started saying to the Lust for Life charity and to the board, what we need to do is to teach those young people how to effectively, really effectively drive change. Because change is not driven on Twitter. Change is not driven on social media. You look at the marriage equality campaign and people like Noel Whelan, that was a 15, 16 year strategy. That was when they sat down at a table and said, how do we drive change? We need to get to the Irish grandmother. We need to get them to understand. We need to get to that level. How long is that going to take? That didn't happen one night in May, one day in May. That was a huge strategy of proper social activism. And what did we end up with? Essentially a New Ireland because of that. So I said to the board, we need, I don't have the energy to do what young people do. I can't protest. I, I, I'll get tired after five minutes and go in for coffee. But what I do know is that this is really complex and we need to understand the political aspects of it, the media aspects of it, the economic aspects of it. We need to arm young people with the tools to be real huge change makers. So we developed programs called Gone Past Talking, which essentially are social uh, activism academies that teach groups on whatever issue it is they care about, whether it's climate change, homelessness, mental health. We don't silo these social issues. These are all coming from the same issues because we haven't funded in social. Uh, or we don't have good social models of care in Ireland. Our social policies are weak. So we find things like homelessness. We, we give power to the market. That's what neoliberalism is. We give power to the market and anyone who doesn't have that power ultimately suffers. So this is what we developed, these activism academies. And over the next two years, we're going to be training people all over this country how to drive change within their community and how to do it the right way, how to do it in a way that you won't have some condescending politician pat your head and tell you you're great. We need to scare the living shit out of, out of policymakers. We need to make them realise that, for example, the 80,000 people that you didn't treat particularly well during the Leave Insert are now about to vote. Huge, huge spectrum. And we need to tell young people that you have power and we're there to facilitate that. And you're there to lead us, not the other way around. So that's change for me. And that's what a Lust for Life aims to do. That is something that I know we touched on before outside a radio station, that it's going to be impossible to affect real change to the healthcare budget, for example, to, to get that, me that mental health spend up. Mm -hmm. It's going to be grassroots incremental change that will really make the difference. And you're right about the energy, that there is a real eyes wide open energy out there. People know what they're dealing with. A lot of it isn't pretty, but there's still the motivation to push through. How do you personally keep that going because it's possible change is absolutely possible but it's a little trickier than people sometimes think it is i think because we've accessed the social media we think by cancelling somebody are going i don't agree with your point of view so we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth people think that's activism that is not activism the first rule of activism is your audience is not the people who agree with you what's the point in trying to convince them they're already in it's the people who don't agree with you if you keep cancelling them because they have different opinions to you or maybe those opinions might be there's a difference between call out culture and cancel culture call out is going I don't agree with what you're doing at all and I'm going to debate this with you 
and I'm going to go through this. But cancelling is, I don't even want to debate this because you offend me and I, I just want to push you aside. That doesn't progress society. So for me, we got to look at this differently. And the reason I'm passionate about it is because I can see where it's worked and I can see where it's changed. I look at the marriage equality campaign and it's so motivating to see how that worked and how it developed and what it did. You know, Ireland isn't as conservative and backward as we think we are. We are so socially um, dynamic. We were the first country to bring in the smoking ban. You know, we, we have balls. We're brave. And I think in the last few years, that bravery has just been diminished massively because politicians are pandering to social media. They're pandering and reacting rather than being strategic and looking forward. And the problem is, I spoke to the mental health minister. People keep talking about, oh, we have 6% budget on mental health. And I keep going, I, I don't even care about that. What is that 6% actually spent on? What's the model that we use? We all know what the model is. The model is a biomedical model, which is important. I was on it for many years, but that is not the only show in town. We need to develop community models. We need to develop talk therapy models. Every child in Ireland who needs help should be able to get help because equality is the most important form of therapy. So one of the things I talked about recently was around the wellness industry and the wellness economy, which is what you see a lot of governments talking about. But governments are talking about the wellness economy because it's a smokescreen to the fact that they haven't got their social policies right. Just by talking about wellness and developing some, you know, wellness GDPs or GN, whatever you call it, what's that going to do to the 3,000 children who are homeless in this country? It's just going to, it's actually just further compounding inequality because there's people here who don't have some basic needs met in a country that we keep saying has the GDP highest growth rate in Europe. And we have 3,000 children. So don't judge a society on this GDP. Judge it on how we treat our most vulnerable. And we're not doing good enough here. So that's motivating. That's not negative. That means we have to do something. And now's a really good opportunity to do it. Are we going to put people first? Are we genuinely going to put people first? Because inequality, you know, Dr. Lucy Johnson, who's a psychologist that I've been incredibly, no, I would say obsessed with, but her work has been something that I, the Jigsaw basically have implemented her model of care, which is called power threat meaning. And she believes that most mental health issues that we see in our world are driven to inequality, discrimination and power imbalances. So you can talk all the wellness bullshit you want, but when inequality exists in a society like it does here, like it does in America, America is the poster boy for inequality. Don't talk to, about well, don't talk to me about wellness until you start looking at that stuff because you want society to be well you got to make it equal. So then are you in for the long game, the kind of change that you're looking to make at a systemic level, you're not going to see in the short term. Does that make it more challenging? Well, I've been doing this eight years. Like, so I, I'm in no rush, you know, and I'm not doing this. I don't know. I'm not saying we have the answers at all. I'm not. That is not. I'm very motivated and very inspired by certain people in our society that have done things that I know have driven change through passion and through, you know, their intellect in, into their empathy, all these different spectrums of, of human emotion. And that inspires, I live in a country where you can do this. Like you could never do this in America. It's too big. It's so huge. It's so vast. There's like, it's just so massive. Ireland is perfect to drive change in because it's 5 million people. Like it's 5 million people. You can get on the phone with politicians you can incite, I need to talk, I need to put this on the table. You can, do you know who's been brilliant in Ireland? And I have to be honest, is media. The media have been very much, I don't know what it is, but they've been very much accepting that this needs to change. And, you know, you often get like some people going on about media being, you know, all having agendas. 
But the reality is, if you actually look at social policy and how things have driven in, in Ireland in the last couple of years, media have been very much supportive of the fact that change has to happen and very much doing what good journalism should be doing, which is holding people in power to account. You know, whether that accountability is actually, we do anything with it, that's the problem. But at least, especially during the pandemic, journalists have been, it's been immense to watch it. They're going, no, no, no. You know, I think why we're still really sore, like I'm quite sore of it, is the fact that we just went through, you know, austerity after a really crippling recession. <laughs> and nobody that was at the forefront of why that happened got punished for it. Nobody. So, of course, society is a bit pissed off. And of course, it's pissed off when people, you know, do things like that without accountability. Because we by and large as a society have stood up and went fuck it we're, we'll do what we have to do here but we all got to be doing it and I think that's the same thing that's equality it comes back to equality every single time and right now I just don't think it's, it's, at, it's where it needs to be and that's what drives my work is it, it, where do we you know where do we go with equality how do we drive real equality Because equality for example you know sure the marriage equality campaign you watched the immense support you even, it even got from the kind of corporate world, you'd see pride flags out, which was incredible. It was just brilliant to see. But I'd love to see those corporate cor organizations show the same graph for social, socioeconomic equality. You know, that same belief that equality is equality. It's part of it's written in our proclamation. It's there. We can read it every day if we want. But we're not living it. And, and that to me is if we're going to address mental health and our policies, we've got to address that first. I like what you said about not wanting to just stand there throwing stones because that doesn't affect real change. And you do seem to be very much motivated in part by trying to change the experience that you had mm. um, and focusing on kids through the schools program that you mentioned, getting mindfulness onto the curriculum and with your, your kids' books, giving kids the, the tools and the language that wasn't there. I think we take the word mindfulness almost for granted now. It gets bandied around all over the place, but it, it wasn't around yeah. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And when I was a kid, like like every kid in Ireland, including yourself, you're don't be scared. Don't be sad. Don't be anxious. Don't dare feel any of those important core emotions that every human being experiences. And if you're a boy, don't cry. Don't cry. You know, and if you, you know, and so we create labels, gender labels then as well. So what I say to young people, I have an eight year old nephew, Billy, who since he came into the world has been a huge shift in my perception of the world. And, you know, I don't have a, I don't have kids. I don't think so. I'm still waiting for a six foot six, 13 year old. <laughs> but I am, I can say that, but I, I have a nephew there and I do not want him to go through what I went through. I do not want him. It's a very definitive motivation that when he goes to secondary school, if there's something on his mind that he can tell me that he has a space to talk about it, that he should feel the good, the bad and the ugly of the human emotion. He should be able to understand what to do with that. Uh, and that is the promise I made to my sister. That's what I want to do. So that's a very personal driven thing that I, I have. I, I want him by the time he leaves his primary school, I want my program to be in his primary school, you know, that type of thing. But that's the thing about kids is, you know, the other thing you have is you have parents now who are incredibly worried about their children all the time because we've created this slight fear factor that it is if your kid isn't perfectly rationally normal, then there's something wrong with them. There must be something wrong with them. Maybe your kid's just a bit of a character. I used to, you know, I mean, I was a character. I was as, you know, my mum would say, she's, uh, there's some of the stories about me as a child, but my mum would just say, he's just a little bollocks. Like, 
He's just being a bollocks. You don't need to label him. You don't need to go, oh my God, he's, he's, he's hyper. You know, and, and that's what I always say to, sometimes we need to be careful with this. Sometimes we need to give kids space just to be kids, to find their way in the world. As a mother or father, you're probably going to, if there's something really wrong there, you, you know, there is people who can help you, you can get assessed. And that, those assessments take time. But this rush to go, there's something wrong with my child because my child, you know, for example, I used to hate going to bed on my own until I was about seven or eight, which is not normal. But now it would be, oh my God, there's something wrong or he's got, he's got anxiety. Like maybe he just doesn't like going to bed. Maybe he had a bad experience, talk him through it. So I'm really wary around that. And I talk to a lot of psychologists. My partner works a lot with kids and in, in assessments with kids. And she looks at them and she often just goes, the kids are fine. They just, they just need to find their way and they need to relate to the world and find their way. And so these are the things I always say around children. Um, and now in my own case with the books, with the mindfulness books, they're all based off Billy, my nephew. I just sit him down and go, what are, you, what, what are you scared of? What do you like? And literally everything I didn't like, he doesn't like. It's so funny as a child, I used to hate swimming pools, dreaded them, terrified of them. And there was no choice. You, you were literally fucked into them yeah like, it's an intense go, experience like, i can't swim oh here's a rubber band oh brilliant thank you um and walk through the disinfectant pool yeah, on your way out in the like minus three degree shower <laughs> that you have to have before you get in i remember our test for the deep end in Mullingar was honestly they they threw you in as far as you could go and told you to tread water so like, what if i can't tread water i was all right because i could probably stand up in the deep end at that stage of my life but the point being is all these issues the kids have, I had them and I said it to Billy, I'm going to write some books about them. And there's a really important thing that, that I always say to children is like, you need to make space for all those emotions, every one of them, even the ones you don't like. Because most, I think, as adults, as we get older, most of our issues come from the fact that we avoid those feelings or we, don't, we pretend they don't exist. Or we outdrink them or we outdrug them or we outrun them, or we outtrain them, or we outwork them, rather than going, you know what, these are normal. A prime example, this shit show, this pandemic, this, every article I see is, oh, you know, there's going to be huge waves of mental health illness. I'm like, are, is there? Is the, are these not just perfectly normal human reactions to what has been an immensely horrible situation? Are, is this just not emotional distress? Is that not just a really healthy human response? Is it just those kind of go, my God, I was terrified. I was fearful. I was hypervigilant for a year and a half. I worried for my family. And now I feel a bit edgy and overwhelmed by that. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, that's a perfectly good response. And I'm really wary of that. And that's, once again, Lucy Johnson, Dr. Lucy Johnson's work. She, 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 she says, watch, watch us try to pathologicalize that. There's something wrong with you now because you're really anxious. You're not sleeping well. You're something broken in you. Let's numb it. Let's talk about it, lads. Let's actually help people. Let's people. Let people understand, you know, that it has been horrific. It's been terrible. It hasn't been enjoyable. And it's, it's, it's pushed all of us. But we're all still standing. You know, maybe we're stronger than we realize. So this is the kind of messaging I believe around mental health. It's not about mental health illness. It's about me emotional distress. It's about emotional, the, the good emotions, like those moments of humanity that we all experienced in the pandemic. Those moments of like, what the fuck is this all about? Why are we? Those moments I can't get out of bed. Those moments where you screamed at swans. I had them. You probably had them. Because we're humans. And this is the thing. I just, I just worry that we're going to rush to 
tell everyone there's something wrong with them. Because we do tend to talk about it and give fear, anxiety, any of that, all the power as if it's a cloud that just arrives and there's nothing that we can do. And yes, it's okay to sit and feel the negative stuff as well. But I spoke to a child psychologist recently and she said people arrive in her office all the time and say, my child has anxiety, but it's okay because, you know, I've had it for years too and just kind of plonk them down rather than just breaking it down and saying to the child, what are you worried about? Okay, it's this. Why don't we try this? Why don't we rationalize it a bit? Hold up. 
He just wants to see and hug her. That's all he wanted to do. He's not crying because there's something broken in him. He's crying because he has empathy, because he is connected, because he is human. And we should celebrate that. And he just goes, I want to fucking move to Australia, he said, because at that time, Australia were just partying. And it was like, I said, but we can't move to Australia, Billy, because Nana can't go to Australia. Why the f He was just like, he was just so upset. But that's the point. Oh, my God, he's hysterical. No, he's not. He is empathy. He is experiencing love. That's what he's doing. And that's that was the reality. And I remember saying that to Laura and she was like, yeah, you're right. You know, it doesn't make it any easier to hear him screaming and upset. And she, you know, it was hard for parents because they, they were schooling their children. It was so difficult for parents. I couldn't imagine how to deal with all that. But that's when you rationalize it sometimes and go, I'm delighted that my nephew's upset because he can't see his nana. That's that's the emotion I want to see. That's that's the connection I want to see every young man and woman express. So do you think there's going to be a, a, a ripple effect from what we've been through and the shakeup we have? Or can it, it be a positive one as opposed to just a negative one? If there isn't, it is the most unique opportunity in our history that we will lose. And if there is, my fear now is a lot of us feel that we need to catch up for the time that we missed. And the world was moving way too fast before the pandemic, way too fast. It was just blinding. People were just so unaware of how fast it was moving. And then it slowed down. And now we go, shite, we got to get going again. You don't. You need to be really careful here now. You need to be you need to create boundaries for yourself. It's not acceptable for your boss to email you at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And I don't care what the fucking job you have. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable to always have to be on for your job. It is not acceptable. It is not acceptable that we literally are always contactable with anybody, even friends that feel they have a right and self-entitlement to get a reply off you within 30 seconds. It is not normal. Talk to me a bit about the mindfulness masters then, because you were already affecting change through Lust for Life. You have your profile, you have your intellect, things are going well. Why did you want the, the qualification to back it all up? Well, it wasn't a qualification I wanted. It was because it was the area I was most uh, game changing for me personally in my own therapeutic process. I did a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, an eight-week course, and it was huge. And then I did mindfulness cognitive-based therapy, which is, um, sorry, acceptance commitment therapy, which is kind of mindfulness and, and values. It was So I'm like, I always say I'm a therapy whore. I've done so much different types of therapy and they've all been really supportive, but mindfulness-based interventions were the most game changing for me because what mindfulness based interventions do now this isn't headspace this is like this is a little bit more where you look at the kind of the mindfulness is not about relaxation it's about insight about gaining insight into yourself and your relationships and how you talk and how you behave and how you react and understanding it's like a real difficult thing to do to sit with that shit that's that's what mindfulness actually is and actually deconstruct it and ask yourself why and then good psychology and good therapy helps you after that so mindfulness changed my life and as my mindfulness coach said headspace didn't invent mindfulness it's been around two and a half thousand years there's a lot to it and then that led me into studying buddhism now before people go we've had enough religion in this country what attracted me to buddhism is and it's not a religion you know there's no direct god there's no deity the buddha is not a god the good the buddha says you're your own truth you know, don't look to me for, you know, you're your own truth. It's in you. And I'm not a Buddhist, but I 
Buddhist psychology has changed my life. And the first noble truth of Buddhism, the four noble truths, is that suffering is an inevitable part about being a human being. Think about that. It sounds really the, negative, but it's actually something so calming about of it. Of course, we're, we're like, my tagline to that, my first is we're all fucked up, but some of us are better at it. And that's suffering. Suffering is part of life. It is integral to life. You know, grief, financial issues. Nobody avoids it. Nobody on earth. Nobody comes into the start and avoids that stuff. That's all the Buddha is saying. But then the Buddha goes on to say in the Noble Truths that, you know, all our suffering or the, the, most of our suffering comes from attachment and aversion. So we're attached to things always staying the same. For example, aging. Even though impermanence, aging is just part of life. We're attached to when good things happen that they just stay good all the time. We're attached, for example, when you eat chocolate and you get that lovely feeling and then it fades. And then you want to eat it again and then it fades. So we're attached to those feelings. And then in aversion, we're averse to feeling things we don't want to feel, like pain, sadness, anxiety, grief. Boredom. Even, boredom, even though these are all important. So a lot of our suffering comes from the fact we shouldn't feel these things. We should have a perfectly, the wellness industry tells us just do cartwheels. Everything is great. Everything is brilliant. Just I, one of my favorite stories is I have a bit of an issue with the kind of reductionism of um, inspirational quotes and memes and generally the wellness industry, which I feel often, as I said, is just a smokescreen to bad social policy. Uh, the wellness industry is amazing. It's really important, but it's, it's a bit simplified. And <laughs> there was this website and it was it was basically um, inspirational quotes. And everyone was on it going, oh, my God, these are beautiful. And it was like a picture of the sea and the sun and the horizon. I was like, oh, my God, this is stunning. Look, it's beautiful. And then a quote, whoever it was. One of the fucking ones was, the quotes read, we only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky every time, which is a threat, a death threat from the IRA to Margaret Thatcher after the Brighton bombings. And everyone's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, that's beautiful. That's so inspiring. We're so blinding now. We just don't we just see a nice sun and we're like, oh, fuck, that's stunning. Oh, so inspiring. And it's just, this is so shit. You know, it just, what does that even mean? Some of these quotes, I look at them, what does, I remember me and Louise would look at you, what does that even mean? And it, it's just, it, it's safe. But when you want to go under all that and you understand how do I, why are my relationships not working so well? Why do I always pull away from intimacy? Why do I, all this stuff, this really important psychological stuff, that's the stuff people don't want to do. You're not going to read about that in an inspirational meme. You know, mm -hmm. that's what good psychologists do. Good therapists go, right, let's get in here. Let's figure this out so you can live a more fruitful life. Because the, the, the memes and the quotes, they're the pretty, but it's the ugly we really want to be but dealing the with. But the memes and quotes, most of them mean nothing anyway. They're just, I just read them and go, what? Like, it, it's this idea of, like, so the way I look at it, right, is um, the difference between optimism and positivity. Positivity is almost blinding. I've got to be positive which means I can't be negative. And if I'm negative, I'm doing something wrong. Where optimism, which is what I am, is if things are bad today, they're not always going to be bad. If this is a tough moment, it won't last. I'll get through it. I'll be stronger. That's optimism. That's really powerful. Really powerful. That's a really great way to look at life. But this idea of just going, I'm being positive all the time and I'm going to avoid any negative feelings and I'm going to pretend they don't exist. And when they do exist, I believe there's something wrong with me and I have to push them away. And I just, I'll feel guilty then if I, horseshit. Horseshit. And that's the problem. If you were positive all the time, you'd be dead. 
being negative is really important. It tells you a lot about yourself. Get to know it a bit. Get to understand it. Uncover it. Maybe you need a bit of help with it. But don't pretend it's not there. And it's okay to have those moments where you just don't want to get out of bed. It's okay to have those moments where you fucking hate your kids for 20 seconds because you've been living under the same roof for six months. It's okay that we feel all these things. And that's all I'm trying to say is that we need to, and that's what Buddhism essentially is saying. And when you, that's where your peace comes from. That's where your, that's where your relaxation comes from. Acceptance. That life isn't a straight line. That when things don't go right for me, it doesn't mean I'm an arsehole. It doesn't mean I'm useless. It doesn't mean I've done something fundamentally wrong. Maybe I don't have control over this situation. That's acceptance. That's where you get your relaxation. That's where you get sustainable peace. Um, and that's ultimately the journey I'm at on. But we don't take that time to do that. You know, I even have gone down a lot of the roads you have also and have all of that. But when I sit down, I tend to take my phone with me and start scrolling through mm. other people's lives. And it's dangerous, isn't it? We're always on. We're always distracted. And we have comparison as part of our it's one of our hobbies yeah. now in life is to compare ourselves to others. Roosevelt said comparison is the thief of joy. And here's a scary stat for you. 90% of all data ever created or generated has been created and generated in the last three years. That's how much data is coming at you in any given moment. That's how much data you have to process, have to look at, have to consume, have to compare yourself to. Um, we cannot do this. Uh, neuroscientists will often say we have an old brain for a new world. So the hardware is not functioning properly anymore. I can't deal with that. So if you break down, say, a lot of the training where a lot of my kind of studies that I was very interested in was the neuroscience and the behavioral science aspects of it, and what the brain looks like and what it does. So your brain, essentially, if you break it down into three three parts, your brain stem, which is like your primal workhorse, beats your heart. It's it just, you, you, you have no control over that. That's the thing that keeps you alive. You know, it's a subconscious kind of thing. Then you have your limbic system. And your limbic system is seriously quick. I mean, terrifyingly quick, but it's, blunt it's a bit stupid it's not there to give you you know accurate descriptions of reality it's there to keep you alive you're about to be hit by a car fuck limbic system on gone it's a reaction thing it's a fight or flight thing and then you have your neurocortex which is the fun part and that's the kind of rational thinking executive functioning part of the brain but the problem is by the time you get to the neocortex the limbic system's already shot all over everything and we're, we're so what happened is they call this throughout the pandemic and generally in the modern world we're in this what we call the amygdala hijack which is we're just in that hypervigilant mode all the time. Slight unease of discomfort all the time. And when we lived in caves, from an evolutionary psychology point of view, when we lived in caves, they call this homeostasis. You go out, you always believe something bad would happen, so you're anxious as fuck. So you're like, you're always on your toes, and that anxiety kept you alive because you were, you were really cautious, you, you really kept your eye open, and you, your field of vision was wide, and you, you survived your your environment from snakes and whatever other shit was back then. Saber that's the one that always that's used. Was, that's the one. That's what we did. And then we got into our cave and then we went back to homeostasis. We were, okay, we're safe now. And we were grand. And then we went out and did it again and then we were grand. In the modern world, that saber-toothed tiger comes into your cave and sits in your chest mm. and watches you every moment. And back then, our threats were physical. Now they're emotional. Now they're threats. Is somebody going to, you know, cancel me is somebody going to say something about me is somebody going to bully me is somebody going to is something going to happen in society then I'm now more connected I know what's happening in fucking Ecuador today whereas back in the day you didn't know any of this stuff so that hypervigilant fear wasn't there 
Now it's there all the time, unrelenting, constant fear. You know, you go on TikTok, for example, and you see some nice stuff, but then you see somebody being horrible to somebody. The fear's gone again. You're in the Olympic system again, and you don't know why, but you're always there. And the reason mindfulness is, people go, mindfulness is really hard. It's not. It's really simple. The problem with mindfulness is, it is the complete opposite of how our brain is now conditioned. Our brain is conditioned for the complete opposite of what mindfulness is. Our, our brain is conditioned to be mindless, completely and utterly mindless. We are submerged in tech. And it's not our fault. This is really important to point out. You're up against seriously powerful forces who know how to get your attention. They'll do everything and they study it. They have, they have the art of attention down to a fine art. And it's very hard to beat it. It's not your fault that you bring your phone when you have five minutes to scroll. It's just al almost undeniable. It's because they know what they're doing. So you have a choice. There's a war for your attention. Do you want them to keep winning it? Or do you want to figure out how to take it back and become more mindful in your life and more present with your loved ones and relationships? It's going to be hard because you're conditioned the opposite way now. And that's why mindfulness seems difficult to you. But if you don't commit to doing this, it's just going to not change. Nothing's going to change. So that's what I say around mindfulness to people. It isn't hard. It's, it's actually the simplest thing in the world. Just just shut up to close your eyes and just to literally focus on one thing and breathe but it is so far away from where our heads are now and people don't realize that your mind is supposed to wander thoughts can come and go that's okay everyone thinks you're supposed to clear their mind i don't know you like can't. what jedi master has ever been able to do that but you just keep bringing it back when you start worrying about what you're having for dinner what you said yesterday what's in your bank balance whatever your stuff is you just bring it back and take a deep breath and be in the here and now i just don't think people really know that enough well as the buddhist uh, philosopher a guy called suzuki says open your back door open your front door and let your thoughts walk through your house just don't ask them for tea that's the idea so when you sit to meditate close your eyes in five minutes you have 50 to sixty thousand thoughts a day just because you close your fucking eyes and burn incense and listen to some whale music they're not going to stop what happens is, here's the basics. So there's principles of practice of mindfulness. And the principles of practice are non-judgment, trust, patience, curiosity, compassion, and acceptance. They're your principles of practice. They don't, it's very hard to get into them now, but that's what they are. So when you sit to practice and you then go, oh God, oh God, I forgot to, you know, I forgot to do something. And you, then you start to create a narrative over that thing you forgot to do. And you're like, oh my God, then I have to go into work. Uh, my boss is going to think I didn't mean, oh, and now you have a storyline. And now you're so far from the present moment that you're anxious. You've created an emotional charge. And if you're, you're that hypervigilant I talk about, you're going to your limbic system, you start to get that fight or flight going, and now you're anxious. You basically, you, you went down the rabbit hole, the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. So mindfulness is about the minute you realize that your mind has drifted to whatever that thought is, just tip your hat to it and come back. That's all. That is literally it. And if you do that 500 times in 10 minutes, that's 500 mental reps. You know what I mean? That's, yeah, they're it, like stomach crunches. That's what they are. If if you're not thinking of anything, you know, whatever drug you're on, that's pretty impressive because I, I've been meditating for eight years and I my head is, is pretty dynamic every time I sit. But I accept it. I let it go. I accept it. I let it go. And as it goes on, it starts to settle. And that's what it is. So is this something that you practice daily? Is this how you keep your head together with all of the commitments you have between the band, between your work, between things you want to do, your podcast? 
It is, but it's informal for me. It's not this necessarily sitting down and meditating. It's it's moments in my day. It's moments where I stop and I tune out. And that moment might be, I don't get really strict with it. I don't go, I have to do this at this point. This should never become another stick to beat yourself with. That is the opposite of what meditation has to be in your life. Our mindfulness. Or wellness. Our wellness, yes. This is the thing. It's just, this, this becomes another obsession of yours. You're literally using it as a smokescreen to something else. So, like... Some people getting into cold water is their mindfulness and they get in for five minutes and they and, you know, when you're in cold water, you're not thinking about your job. You're not thinking about what you're you're basically surviving the absolute Balticness of it. And you just and you keep it. And that's that's mindfulness going for a run and just just listening is mindfulness. It doesn't have to be having a conversation with a loved one and putting everything away and being really present with them. That's mindfulness. So there's a difference between meditation and mindfulness. Mindfulness is a way of being being present. Meditation is a practice that you do to become more mindful. So it's fair to say you talk the talk, but you walk the walk. And last week you ran an ultra marathon. Was it 200 kilometers over three oh, days? Gee, 140. Jesus, the 200. I'd say I wouldn't, <laughs> I literally wouldn't be having this discussion. Ah, well just, then no, I'm not even, I'm not yeah, even impressed yeah, I anymore. <laughs> I, I, drove, I drove the last 60. That's, that's, that's about <laughs> Okay. No, but it's an ultra marathon regardless. And two live shows. Yeah. In, yeah. the, in the middle of it yeah it's ridiculous why, why when did this idea come about you've nothing left to prove you can continue working on what you're working on but you really went mind body spirit it, with this one yeah it was silly really when I think back it, the, the gigs came in after so the gigs weren't like let's put them all together and I couldn't have been that guy who whinged about not kicking for two years and not do it when they actually come up so the gigs came up after I committed to the ultra marathon and the ultra marathon was to raise money for lust for life. So we as an organization, it's not easy to, you know, to do what we do. Our programs aren't cheap. We have to hire people. We have project managers. We have serious teams of people developing these programs for schools. This isn't a back of a fag box, in a, you know, in a pub. This is serious stuff. So you need serious funds to do it. So the reality is doing these types of races, and we've raised over 35 grand just from the run that's unrestricted funding that allows us maybe to hire a project manager to deliver the schools programs in another 60 to 100 schools. So that's the reality of of it. And I knew that if I got involved with it, I could probably help drive the funding to it. So that was it. And it was called the Mindful West Run. And it was essentially running from here to Termin Barry in Roscommon. Sorry, Wicklow to Termin Barry in Roscommon. And I didn't know whether I could do it, but I've done endurance stuff before. I've done some mad endurance stuff and I was like right give it a sh- I'm not built for running I'm big I'm heavy and off he went last week and hustled it and the hardest part of it wasn't the distance it was the canal the straightest thing and literally the straightest thing I've ever seen you could see 15 kilometers ahead of yourself um, but kept going kept hustling it and knocked it out and then did the gig the gig then I had to get up and did the marathon the next morning to Mullingar and then the gig straight to check, did the gig and in the middle of the gig our drummer Deck he knew exactly what he was doing got all the crowd to sit down he was everybody sit down and he started going you sit down as well I was like Deck you know exactly what's going to happen if I sit down I am not getting up and it was literally like James Brown I had the lads the, the crew had to come on stage and I couldn't even bend they had to just pick me up by the arms and they had to get me back up onto my feet. But yeah, it was. It was it, it, ultimate. What about criticism then you face? Anyone who puts themselves out there, 
not everyone's going to get behind you. Do you get much of that? Of course you do. And criticism on one hand is quite important because one thing I've never done is said, I, I have this all figured out. This is what we should do. It's not what I do. It's not my message. It's like what we have isn't working and we got to figure out together collectively what to do about this. I, I genuinely do. And even people like who disagree with me, that's fine if they're willing to civilly debate about it. If they're willing to debate all day, every day, happy days, that's how functioning democracies work with debate, dialogue, conversation. But then you get so many people who just, their, their only argument is, you're ma. You know, that's literally all they have in their arse pocket. You can't debate with people like that. And you shouldn't. And you should certainly not have any debates on Twitter. It's, it's where context goes to die. That's literally the graveyard for context. So to have a conversation about nuanced, sensitive subjects, it's just not the place to do it. And we, we need to stop giving it the power that we think it has over society, including the media who go... Twitter erupted after the Late Late Show. I was like, dude, eight people said something. There was a million people watching the fucking show. Let's get a little bit of context here and perspective on this conversation. People didn't erupt. A few people were pissed off at home and said something on Twitter. It doesn't represent our entire... So this is the things you got to think. I, I love civil debate. I really do. And in many cases, the one thing I promise you I'll always do, if somebody goes and proves me in, in, in that I've, what I've said is I, I will take that I honestly will take that but then you have to decipher there's some people who I often think to myself who just you know dish out abuse and the reason I don't get involved in it is I often think are they alright like are they okay mm. are they okay like do they feel they have to do that is something happening in their life that they, they feel this you know need to say these things and that is quite helpful if you're in the public you're meeting eye. it with empathy rather than and, and even if it mightn't be true maybe they are just being straight up arseholes but it actually preserves my own mental health to go maybe there isn't maybe there is something happened to them maybe there is something that's kicked off in their life and they're carrying it and uh, and maybe i just said something stupid or arsey and i'll take that too you know honestly it's the biggest learning curve i got is to park the ego in these t types of things and understand see try to see the world from other people's points of view even if you don't sometimes agree with them but when people just don't want to do that, there's nothing you can do. It comes back to the Stoic philosophies, which is a huge part of my work and training as well. Stoicism is the dichotomy of control. You've zero control over that. Nothing. You've no control over other people's perceptions of you. None. You can you can highlight your values and what you stand for, and then it's up to them. But you don't control their perception of you. You just don't. And if you get upset about it and, and drown in it all the time, you're in the wrong game. So that's ultimately, you know, and often even things in the creative world, rejection is a huge part of your job. You got to, you know, you got to, you get rejected a lot. Like you send stuff to radio, they don't play it. You put it out, it doesn't do well. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. All that other stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not nice. No one likes it, but I'm okay with it. You know, so that's the thing. And, and abuse, abuse coming from people. So some of it is also, when people feel they've power, you know, they, they say something to you and you respond. Now the ball, now the power's in their court. They literally now go, oh, I, he responded and now I have him, I've rattled him. And now for somebody who might just be sitting in their sitting room watching 
only fools and horses are going happy days I, I have a bit I can I can bring this like and that that's quite that's quite you know if you think about it that's quite enticing to, to be able to do imagine back in the day in the 80s if you were pissed off in 90s 80s 90s and you're fucking you know I don't know Ken Bill Cosby yeah exactly or Eddie Vedder <laughs> or something was on and you were able to Eddie Vedder just responded to me on a thing. You literally shit yourself. You're like, oh my God, this is incredible. But um, I wasn't going to go with the Bill Cosby. Uh, I know, well, it was the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. We, we didn't know how we much of a, a bollocks he was. Um, but yeah, it was, that's the thing. It, it's a lot, it's a, it's it, to be able to do that. And I think that's the social media thing and music that kills me as well. It's like, like, do you ever think Prince would have been on Twitter? I don't think he would have. I love the fact that I love my pop stars to be kind of, not quite sure who you are I like the mystery of a pop star that's why I love the like the princes and the madonnas back in the day you just never knew but now you know what they're having for breakfast well look yeah. like prince and madonna you are known by just one name Brezzy <laughs> Niall Breslin thank you and keep doing what you're doing I think you're a very impressive individual thank you very much cheers Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.